Welcome to the Untitled Investment Talk, the podcast about all things digital assets. Welcome. The topic of our Untitled Investment Talk today is an evergreen. Blockchain and its environmental impact, the sustainability of Bitcoin, and how to price carbon emissions of Bitcoin. For all our long-term listeners here, today is just me, Carl Michael, hosting the show since my podcast co-host Simon unfortunately got sick. We have a very competent and renowned guest here, or I have a renowned guest with me today, which is Philip Sandner. He is a professor at the Frankfurt School of Finance and head the Frankfurt School Blockchain Center. Hi, Philip. Great to have you on the show. Hello, and thanks for being here, and thanks for putting all these topics together, and very happy to hear your questions. Super. Pleasure is definitely on my side. And what I always wanted to know is, when did you enter the blockchain space, or the crypto space, or the digital asset space? But Was there a kind of, of moment of choose for you? Uh, well, I discovered Bitcoin back in 2013, 2014. At that point of time, I read a couple of blogs from the Silicon Valley, like precisely the TechCrunch blog I read at that point of time very frequently. And then the Bitcoin spiked to 1,000 US dollar, coming from $50 to $1,000 and then back to $400. And at that point of time, the Bitcoin was in the media everywhere, at least in this tech media. And it caught my attention and I inspected it and I just started to, to investigate it and I became basically a fan and all this blockchain stuff became something like a hobby. Oh, that became a hobby for you. And, and, but but it, now it's a profession for you at the Frankfurt Blockchain Center, right? Yes, exactly. Because uh, as a hobby, you invest a little bit of time here and a little bit of time there and you read some newsletters, but I didn't really invest much time back in 2014, 15, 16. And then I started to join the Frankfurt School as a professor. And over there, uh, we then decided to uh, start the, a blockchain center, something like a research institute at the university. Uh, you might need to know that the Frankfurt School is a university in the field of business. In Germany, we have approximately, I think, 400, 500 business faculties in Germany and of yeah, our universities in Germany. And the Frankfurt School is one of these 400, 500. So that's the market. And I think Frankfurt School is, is a small university. Therefore, therefore, it's also quite speedy, quite agile. And I think that's also the reason why the blockchain center exists with us and nowhere else. I mean, it's an absolute congratulations. You are very well known definitely across the borders of, of uh, Germany, beyond the borders of Germany for uh, definitely. And uh, what's the mission of the Frankfurt Business School Blockchain Center? Is it only about research or I think you have a more comprehensive service offering, have you? Well, we, in the beginning, we, tr we had two topics we had a topic around crypto assets uh, that was back in 2004 back in 2016 this was bitcoin and ethereum there was no nft there was no defi and but there were a couple of icos at that point of time and on the other side we talked about enterprise solutions that's basically mobility solutions energy solutions for the energy sector and so on and so forth and we now had to learn over the last couple of years that everything related to crypto assets developed extremely dynamic. Yeah, we know this now we have thousands of tokens, we have all kinds of DeFi applications, NFT and so on. And with regard to enterprise blockchain solutions, you know, in the energy sector, in the mobility sector and so on, not much has happened, especially when you talk about the enterprise solutions like Hyperledger and R3 Corda and so on. 
basically not much or to be very clear here, nothing is happening anymore. And therefore, we also saw this coming back in 2019 and then decided to just focus on crypto assets in all its variants and basically do not care anymore about the enterprise blockchain domain because it's companies like Bosch, Daimler, Siemens, not much is happening there at this point of time. This also includes our focus on financial use cases, that's stable coins, Bitcoin, storage of value, the DeFi smart contracts as the future of capital markets and so on and so forth. And because we are in Frankfurt, of course, that's the capital, the financial capital of Germany. Therefore, we have lots of legacy financial institutions, lawyers and regulators in our network. We also try to educate them on how they could explore crypto assets, how Bitcoin can be used at a bank potentially in the future, how stable coins could be plugged into accounting systems and all, all these topics we basically discovered together with our partners in Frankfurt, right? And in this field, what are we doing there? We're doing everything related to education. We are doing conferences. That's applied education. We are having a master program for blockchain and digital assets. This master program will start its first run this year in autumn with 30 students. And we also have online programs focusing on coaching and mentoring of blockchain topics. The most well-known program here is our DLT Talents program. That's basically a three-month course for mentoring women to basically get started in the blockchain domain. And here we now have approximately 1,500 applicants per year. Wow, wow. That's, that's definitely impressive. I mean, it makes a lot of sense, your, your journey. I see my personal or untitled inks uh, of focus. We also started with like industry applications in telecom and, and other areas of blockchain. But in the end, we found out the epicenter is uh, the financial market and digital assets. Uh, anyhow, what we want to talk about today is the impact of proof of work, especially so Bitcoin networks on the environment. I mean, there have been frequent forecasts over the last, last five years on um, what Bitcoin will do to the environment, that uh, Bitcoin will use all world's energy by 2020 and these kind of things. You might be confronted with it on a daily basis as well. Uh, what's your typical response to these kind of studies or I would say even political narratives? Well, you know, it's just taking some time until people are understanding crypto assets and Bitcoin and until also people are understanding the benefit of Bitcoin and so on. And therefore, to some degree, we can influence this. Yes, we can educate the people that also works. But to some degree, the diffusion of a technology like this simply has to happen over years. And therefore, to some degree, we just have to accept it that people are thinking it this way, because it has always been like this in the last decades and centuries, right? In case you had a new technology coming that applies to the smartphone, remember the iPhone 1, that the same was with regard to the, the realm of the internet in 1998. It was with the realm of the car in comparison to horses. And you know all these examples. And as always, people have been skeptical um, about new things. Typically, young people are less skeptical than elderly people. And therefore, it just takes time until education takes place, until people find us on YouTube, until people find this podcast and so on and so forth. Then they get interested. And once people invest some time to really inspect the technology, then they typically find it very interesting and stay with the technology, right? And here is the proof. 
it really takes some time until people understand Bitcoin and Ethereum, but try to find one person who has understood all about this technology and still remains skeptical, right? <laughs> What I mean here is the following. In the beginning, everybody starts skeptical. I was skeptical. You were skeptical. Probably my wife, my uncle, everybody was skeptical. And then it takes some time until people are investigating the technology. And with time, I mean weeks or sometimes months or years. And then people understand the technology and lose their skepticism. It's always the same journey about how people get into the technology, learn it, and then their final opinion on it. And therefore, it's basically hard or nearly impossible to find a person who has understood crypto assets deeply, including the economics part of it. And at the same time, people are still skeptical. It's basically close to impossible to find such person. And this really proves that people just need to invest a little bit of time, weeks, months, and then they turn into advocates of the technology. You are absolutely right. I mean, I went through a couple of technical evolutions during my career, especially in telecom and mobile telecom, where there were all these kind of negative environmental discussions in the beginning. But in the end, everyone is using it, right? I think that history repeats, we can say here. We're coming back to this energy and environmental discussion, which is like one attack angle on, on let's say, blockchain. I mean, there's a difference between proof of work, so what the Bitcoin network is doing, and proof of stake where Ethereum is migrating to within the, even within the next months. If we compare both these kind of technologies, what do you think, or put it differently, the move of Ethereum to proof of stake, what does it mean for, from an energy consumption or environmental impact perspective? Yeah. So first of all, the, the energy problem of Bitcoin, if it's a problem at all, let's discuss this later on. But the energy discussion, the energy problem is basically primarily specific to Bitcoin not and to other proof of work coins, but not so much to Ethereum and also not too much to other coins. So now Ethereum turns towards proof of stake. That, that means that they are lesser in comparison to Bitcoin. Their lesser footprint with regards to electricity is is even lessened basically to a very, very small amount of energy, right? So it, it was a, it's a good move on behalf of Ethereum from an energy perspective. At the same time, they are giving up degrees of decentralization, right? So mm -hmm. still, I think it's a good mode. It's also promising from this perspective. But speaking now in terms of Bitcoin, the high energy consumption is also needed because it provides a huge security of the network. Therefore, it does make sense to have this, this, this energy consumption. Then two points I would like to make here, three points. First of all, in comparison to this energy consumption, there is also a benefit. And the benefit of Bitcoin is that you are able to do point-to-point -point transaction on the entire globe, yeah, say from Japan to Argentina or any other point-to-point -point transaction at close to zero transaction costs and at a transaction speed, which the legacy system cannot deliver. Yeah? So you can move 500 million US dollar in terms of Bitcoin from some village in Japan to some high rise in Brazil and the money arrives within 20, 30 minutes, right? That's basically unprecedented when you compare it to legacy financial systems. And that's basically the one of the benefits. The second benefit is that you can now include also people all over the world, because these people adopting Bitcoin and other crypto assets like Ethereum, they just have to have electricity and access to a computer, right? In case this is existing, then they can participate in these financial networks. 
And that's very important because there are countries in our world where the institutional quality is not as high as we know it, for example, from Europe and from the US. With institutional quality, I mean that everything works quite well in Germany, where I'm sitting right now, or in Europe, and but it's different in other countries on the world, for example, in Africa and in Latin America. And over there, crypto assets like Ethereum and Bitcoin, they work as a backup institution because the governments over there and the countries over there have failed to create high-quality institutions which are serving the people over there. So in, in the absence of high-quality institutions, like a banking system which doesn't work or not existing banks, it, it suddenly makes sense to for the people over there to turn towards Ethereum and Bitcoin to use this technology as an institution and as a backup financial systems for them to make transactions, right? That's exactly also the reason why you see quite high adoption in countries like Argentina, Turkey and, Arge and, and Brazil, because over there institutions are working, yes, but they are becoming a little bit less stable, especially with skyrocketing inflation. Yeah, suddenly people turn towards this backup institution. And that's, that's the benefit which crypto assets are delivering. And the last point here is the possibility to have an asset which you cannot confiscate, right? Now, after Ukraine war st started, we now have learned that assets can be even confiscated on the level of central banks, right? You remember that euro and dollars have been frozen with regards to the Russian central bank back in February, March. So assets can be confiscated. This is basically new to the world because it's now exercised. But with Bitcoin and storing the private key of your wallet, you have the possibility of unconfiscated assets, right? This happens when you are not storing your Bitcoin at a crypto exchange and you're also not storing the Bitcoins and the Ether on a USB wallet, but rather you're trying to memorize the C-trace, then nobody can take this away from you. And with this, you suddenly have an asset which has become unconfiscatable, right? And this is basically really delivering some value exactly in those countries where potentially things are taken away from people. And that's basically the three points of value which crypto networks deliver, including Bitcoin. Uh, and therefore, this basically is the benefit which stands on the other side of the energy consumption. I think that that's super interesting because what you lined out, I mean, this discussion about proof of work in Bitcoin is always like it's attacking ESG. But if you think E for environment, S for social, G for good governance, right? then you clearly explained already that the S and G factors, the social and governance factor, here are Bitcoin and proof of work has big pros against almost all other financial technologies or systems we are using. So we can even turn the narrative, whatever, 180 degrees and say, if you have a holistic view on Bitcoin, it's even ESG friendly and might be even ESG friendlier than, again, than other technologies or the, the, the traditional finance stuff. I think that that's super, super interesting. Yeah, Thank it's you. difficult, you know, it's really yeah. difficult to measure the footprint of other systems with, with yeah. regard to, to Bitcoin's footprint. But, you know, at this point of time, there are 40 million European citizens who own some Bitcoin and crypto assets, and there are 40 million US citizens doing so. So taking this together on the entire globe, the, the estimations are approximately 200 million people owning Bitcoin and crypto assets, 200 million. So come on, 
of course, a system needs electricity to basically provide financial infrastructure for 200 million people. You know, of course, a system requires energy. I, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, it's what a question about what kind of energy we are talking about here, right? It yeah. Is it renewable energy or, I mean, Bitcoin itself can be used to even incentivize the generation of renewable energy, which is always, it's also sometimes left out in this. Yeah, these and, and, and I think narratives. here I would like to add something which is very, very, very important because in my personal opinion, but this is also said by other people, it's not about the electricity consumption per se. It's more about the correlated CO2 emissions, which are behind the energy being produced, right? So imagine... Imagine you are in El Salvador and you're running a Bitcoin mining farm, which of course consumes electricity. And all this electricity of this mining farm is coming from a, a geothermal facilities because there is very hot uh, water uh, coming out of the ground from underground volcanoes. And you simply take this very hot water, put it into turbines, get electricity and power your Bitcoin mine. So it's 100% renewables. Is there an issue with such a Bitcoin mine, which is relying on 100% renewables? I don't think so, right? It, it would be very, very crazy to basically judge a Bitcoin mining farm in case it's 100% being powered by a renewable electricity, like hot water uh, coming out of the ground in case of underground volcanoes, for example. Same is true for solar power. The same is true for water power and so on and so forth, right? So the problem with regard to electricity consumption is because it's correlated with CO2 emissions. And the network of Bitcoin currently uses approximately 50% of renewable energies and 50% of fossil fuels. That's the problem. But over time, there are good reasons to believe from a logical perspective that the footprint of Bitcoin will become better over time. So it's getting greener over time because that's basically the mechanics of the Bitcoin network. The reason there's is... There's some, some empirical proof for this already. I think over the last year or so, this, will, this kind of ratio you were talking about really improved. I think it's even more than 50% now. But I agree with you, yeah. Yeah, and, and the reason is that basically Bitcoin mining farms have to have access to the lowest cost electricity to run profitable. And what are the lowest cost electricity sources? What are they? That's electricity coming from solar, wind, and hydropower, and also, by the way, nuclear energy. That's those energy sources with the lowest cost of electricity. So by nature of the mechanics of the entire Bitcoin network, over time, the mining farms will tend to move towards more renewable energies. But it's a very, very, very lengthy process. It will take years. And therefore, the discussion right now is still valid because, yes, the electricity consumption of Bitcoin is high. The, the, the CO2 footprint is definitely existing. And therefore, it makes sense to discuss it. But what I would like to focus on is there is some hope that over the course of years, it will definitely improve. Yeah, I think even with the move, I mean, China banned Bitcoin and obviously kicked all the miners out. So mining business very quickly migrated to the U.S., and I'm not 100% sure, but I assume even the, the use of uh, regenerative energy in the US might be higher than, than in China. So even these kind of global politic, political movements also point into the right direction. Although I agree with you, nothing is perfect. I'm taking a, a figure which I read in one of your studies where you found out that um, 
the Bitcoin total carbon footprint is 0.08% of worldwide CO2 emissions. So I think we also need to, to know about what kind of volume we are talking about here, if all these kind of yes negative narratives are put out. But that brings me to yes another question, because you did this super interesting study on two certificates and pricing, let's say, the carbon footprint of Bitcoin. The idea behind this was especially you addressing like financial institutions, everyone who either transacts or holds Bitcoin. And I think you guys wanted to quantify the impact of holding or transacting with Bitcoin. Maybe you can tell us a little bit or me a little bit more about this study and, and the results. Yes, exactly. So we have been investigating this entire topic because we also wanted to provide some objective metrics to to specifically equip companies like asset managers, banks, ex uh, crypto exchanges, ETF funds, and so on with some toolkit such that they can potentially offset Bitcoin's CO2 footprint, right? So imagine there is an asset manager, there is a Bitcoin ETF fund who might hold 40 million of Bitcoin, then for, for these guys, it might be required, not just desired, it might be required for them to offset the Bitcoin um, CO2 footprint, because then they have like a better rating in terms of regulation and have better access to customers and uh, investors. That's basically the story. And to do this, it's very uh, important to quantify what exactly is the CO2 footprint of Bitcoin. You have to first quantify it because otherwise you cannot quantify the footprint of this Bitcoin ETF fund. And what we did for the Iconic fund, Iconic runs a physical Bitcoin. The ETF, let's call it that way, like uh, technically speaking, it's an ETP product, but people would still call it ETF. So we computed that, that this specific Bitcoin ETP fund consumed back in 2021 approximately 40 tons of CO2. That's basically what we found out. And now this kind of financial product can decide whether they are offsetting these numbers or not, for example, by purchasing CO2 credits elsewhere. I can also mention some other numbers. For example, the Bitcoin network electricity consumption measured last year, approximately one year ago, was 91 terawatt hours. That relates to 38 megatons of CO2. And it, it sounds a lot, uh, but we discussed it previously that it, it should clear up in the years to come. Also, regulation will point towards this being reduced such that the electricity consumption stays like it is, but the CO2 footprint should go down in the years to come. And the most important point is the question, what are you exactly measuring? Is it the Bitcoin transaction which is mm -hmm. taking place? Yeah. yeah. So in case I'm transacting a little bit of a Bitcoin, is this transaction required to be CO2 offsetted or... Are those people required to offset their, the CO2 footprint in case they are also owning Bitcoin for three years, right? So originally you would say, okay, in case you are purchasing Bitcoin, then you have to offset it. But in case you are holding Bitcoins for three, four years, then you are still benefiting from the network effects, which are increasing as time is passing. So therefore, we came up with a mixed approach saying that both make sense, the transaction-based approach and the ownership approach, both make sense. And companies need to specify what kind of business models are they operating. Is it a fund which is holding Bitcoin or is it an exchange where Bitcoins are flowing in and flowing out all the time? So depending on the business model, 
they have to compute the load of CO2 they should offset, right? That's basically our one of our key messages that it's depending on the business model on how much these companies should offset in terms of CO2, right? I find it super interesting. And I mean, I kind of took two numbers out of your study, which says the cost of the compensation for one Bitcoin transaction is around 18 US dollars. And it can be, in the end, a transaction of whatever, 100K US dollars. It can be millions of, of US dollars. And for this ownership-based approach, the holding or holding of Bitcoin, it's the cost is around 100 US dollars per one Bitcoin per year, right? I think that are very good benchmarks. Uh, exactly. That was also here. our goal to come up yeah. with clear metrics, which are also denominated in a unit, which we can easily understand. It was basically two per transaction, CO2 per holding Bitcoin, and then also the associated amount of money, which, which would be required to compensate this. Actually, you would have to redo all these metrics now, one year later, because all these metrics are changing over time. But I think it was very helpful for us and for many people who have read our study such that they can think of compensating their coin business model with such metrics, which can be easily applied. And just in case you want to have some comparisons, because it feels so simple to offset Bitcoin. But imagine you are an airplane company like Southwest Airlines or Lufthansa or any other carrier. So in case you are transporting passengers from A to B, then you can offset the, the kerosene consumption, right? So you're charging a surcharge per ticket per passenger because you have to offset the kerosene which you are consuming. That makes sense, right? But what about the airplane which has been constructed? Because the airplane has been constructed for a duration of 50 years and the construction of the airplane also consumed CO2. So what, what are you now offsetting? The transporting of the passengers or building the aircraft? That's exactly the same analogy which also applies to the Bitcoin network. Are you offsetting the generation of Bitcoins when they have been generated? Or are you offsetting the transactions when they are moved from A to B and when miners are processing the transactions in their mining farm. And our solution was that there is no clear left or right. It's basically a mixture and it really comes down to the business model you are operating. Are you a fund holding Bitcoin? Are you an exchange where Bitcoins are coming to your wallets in and out all the time? Or what kind of business model are you operating? Yeah, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. And I, I really like the analogy to the airline business. Let's be a little bit like, I'll call it progressive or whatever. Do you think your methodology can become a kind of European or even global standard? You never know, right? I think from a quality perspective, we did a good work. There are also other people out there which are doing similar work. At the end of the day, such a methodology needs to be applied. And luckily in Europe, we do have some Bitcoin ETFs which could apply. I think they are also interested, but we do not have large-scale Bitcoin exchanges. Yeah, They are coming from other, other sides of, of the globe. And regulatory forces are not strong enough yet to enforce that Bitcoin needs to be compensated, right? So the chances are there that our approach might be used, but it needs to be used by Bitcoin funds, Bitcoin ETFs and exchanges and custody firms. And the question is, where are they developing most dynamic? And I do see them developing most dynamic in the USA currently, not so much in Europe. And therefore, most probably 
frameworks like ours coming from some kind of US companies or US universities could be more widely used because they don't know us, right? So imagine you are a large-scale US bank, then you would rather rely on a approach like this coming from the Stanford University or some other uni US university because you would not know the Frankfurt School of Finance, uh, which is which is perfectly fine, you know, that's, let's see what happens. Some standard of this sort will be applied very widely, definitely. There might be multiple standards in the future. I'm not sure if it's ours, but maybe our standard is also help inspiring the work of others. You know, that's perfectly fine. Okay, no, fair, fair point. Maybe what helps you is that the European Union is uh, a little bit more closely looking on the ESG topics than the US is at, at the moment, I assume. But you're right. In the end, it's a question of how, yeah, but how you close know, you are to... Yeah. Yes, the European Union is looking at these topics. But what if the industry, you know, like banks around the, around Europe, you know, Deutsche Bank, Commerzbank, mm -hmm. Santander, BBVA and so on, what if these banks are not adopting it? You know, then, then you have regulatory efforts which are not applied because the banks are staying away from all uh, these assets. Oh, I tell you, my banker, I mean, I do next to crypto also like the traditional asset management he's hammering on me already like uh, whatever six or nine months seem to kind of following a script that uh, you want to do an esg compliant investment the products he's offering are sometimes whatever msci uh, sri or, or these kind of uh, these kind of things so i'm not so pessimistic on this side but anyhow it depends on the bank i agree with you okay philip at the end of our talk we always have what we call a golden question right it's yeah maybe a little bit challenging so currently we have like this a very polarized political debate about uh, bitcoin huh? there are uh, certain people who are very much pro and then there is a political group always attacking bitcoin especially because of the energy consumption do you think in the future we will still have this kind of polarization Or do you think these opinions will kind of converge and more people will understand the technology and we reach a kind of equilibrium state, which is more in the middle than at the extremes? Yeah, good question. Actually, I think at some point of time it will converge because people will grow up and understand the technology objectively right. And But it will take years, you know, take the smartphone, you know, is a smartphone a nice technology or not? I think, yes, it's a nice technology. People now understand it. And some people are still concerned about the radi about the radiation of the cell phone, right? Because it's uh, mm. sending out signals all the time. But it's widely understood that radiation might be a danger here and there, but it's it's not a super, super critical danger anymore. But go back in time when the iPhone 1, iPhone 2, iPhone 3 was invented or the previous uh, cell phones from Nokia and so on. At that point of time, radiation was viewed extremely skeptical in the media. And it just took 10 years, people getting comfortable uh, with the fact that the radiation is not so much a problem as they believed in the, in, the, in the early beginnings, right? And there are so many examples out there where people, primarily elderly people, are starting extremely skeptical. Take the metaverse discussion. The metaverse is viewed extremely skeptical because when you think metaverse, then you think of people in their small room, it's dark in there and they have <laughs> their VR glasses uh, on their head and they are in some kind of artificial uh, world and they 
don't come back into the real world anymore, right? That's the that's the image you have, right? And that's the that's the skeptical image you have. And then it takes time until such technologies also show their benefit. And then it takes years, maybe 10 years, 15 years, until people are comfortable with this, until people are okay with it, and until the, the public opinion then twists. So therefore, I think we will have years ahead with lots of strong discussions between pro-Bitcoin, pro pro-crypto people and people against it. And it will take years to sort it out. But I have one example here which I would like to mention. Everybody knows Ethereum. And Ethereum is a nice smart contract platform where you can also put on top other assets like equity assets, securities, debt instruments, shares, and all kinds of assets from the legacy financial markets, right? You simply tokenize them and put them on smart contract platforms like Ethereum. Yeah, so it's basically a legacy asset like a share or other securities plugged on top of the smart contract platform, which is called Ethereum. It's okay, right? It's okay. But imagine this discussion minus four years, minus five years back in 2017. Mm. Imagine yeah, at that I mean, point of time when I would have discussed in this podcast the idea of putting share or securities like a legacy capital market asset on top of a crazy cryptocurrency platform, which is called Ethereum. Imagine this. Everybody would have said, so come on, that's entirely unrealistic. Unreal, uh, and now you see here very nicely, it has become common sense and nobody is disputing it anymore, the, the, the five-year-old opinion, because at that point of time, it was unbelievable that uh, crazy crypto assets could meet legacy assets in forms of uh, securities. And now, 2022, it's even written in the law that it's possible, right? You see that within a couple of years, the public opinion now in the digital security space clearly turned towards smart contract platforms in the form of Ethereum. Nobody talks anymore about Hyperledger and R3. And the most important point is here, nobody remembers their own opinion back in 2017 <laughs> when, uh, when it was unbelievable. Yeah, it's very interesting. No. Suddenly, uh, suddenly, people have twisted their personal opinion and they don't even remember that they have thought exactly the opposite a couple of years ago. Yeah, yeah, I mean, there are a couple of investment bank uh, investment bank CEOs, which you could easily quote on what they said two or three years ago. No, yeah. absolutely, absolutely agree with you. So you see the whole space maturing, the regulation maturing, it gets smarter, it, it, it understands things better. Uh, so that maybe this polarization um, will disappear over time. Philip, thank you so much for joining me here today. That was really was a super interesting talk. Great to know your views on the, let's say, environmental impact of proof of work, proof of stake, the economic aspects and, and the kind of political debate. That was really great. Perfect. Thanks very much. And I think it will be very exciting years ahead. Cool. Perfect. That is the best final statement you can have. Dear listeners, we hope you enjoyed the talk today. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned. Stay loyal to the Untitled Investment Talk, the podcast about all things digital assets. All signal, no noise. Mm -hmm.